You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Talking About Podcast. I am your host, as always, Daniel Olinger, joined by Sean Kennedy, who, I mean, Sean, you deprived the people of your Sixers bell ringer recaps the past week, selfishly, as you went on vacation down to the south. So shame on you, first and foremost. But also, we have returned, well, you have returned to see that I have brought on a very special guest of us. Is Lucas Kaplan, a staff writer for Nets Republic and a fellow Northwestern student here. My one class above me, right, Lucas? Yep, yep. I'm a junior. Yeah. And last night, the Sixers valiantly took down the Brooklyn Nets to secure first place in the Eastern Conference, which we're going to be talking about. But before we dive into the 123 to 117 win for the Sixers, we have to talk about the big news that dropped this morning, LaMarcus Aldridge retiring from the NBA due to health concerns. Uh, I'll just go to YouTube first. Sean, what was your reaction when you saw that news? Just wishing the best for him and his family moving forward. I, I know he was excited about joining Brooklyn and they, they're obviously a title contender. You and I have talked about that repeatedly on the pod. So for, for a veteran like like him, I'm sure he was looking forward to another playoff run and, and hopefully, you know, for him getting that first ring. So I have to imagine it was a, a tough decision. But, uh, yeah, f- from a personal level, I just hope uh, he continues to be healthy and wish all the best for him going forward. Uh, from a basketball perspective, it's, it's interesting because it seemed like he had really become their main option at the five. Like DeAndre Jordan had picked up a DNP CD recently and it was kind of like Aldridge was the stretch guy. And then Claxton was the more switchable option uh, when they wanted to go that route. Um, so I guess the good thing is that they, they did bring in a lot of different guys. So they do have some depth at the position now, but uh, yeah, losing what they had kind of settled on as their best option is definitely something that hurts them, I think. So from a Sixers perspective, that's, that's good, I guess. And Lucas, obviously, you're the Nets expert here. Kind of, what was your reaction? And since you're plugged into, I guess, Nets Twitter, the Nets fans, what was kind of their reaction to this? Just like news that's like, I don't even know what to compare it to. It really is one of those things where you're just in the NBA where it's like, I don't know what there's any precedent for something like this. It was just out of nowhere. The closest thing I can think about is Chris Bosch's sudden retirement a few years ago. See, like, even even that, like, there had been, like, a buildup. He had missed a few years. It was pretty clear, like, oh, this is winding down. Like, like we saw LaMarcus play last week and look fine. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. I mean, I was getting – I was at Newark Airport ready to fly back to Northwestern 
before I boarded my flight. Oh, LaMarcus has retired. I saw Sham's tweet first without the additional context, but I think my reaction and a lot of Nets fans reaction is the, was mainly centered on the first thing Sean pointed out was just wishing him the best. Um, you know, as more details came out, we kind of remember that this is something that he's been dealing with for a long time. But one of the first things I thought of as well is, you know, Sean pointed out that LaMarcus had looked rejuvenated to an extent playing in Brooklyn and, you know, it was only five games, but man, he just looked happy. He looked spry. He was, he had a few good defensive games, a couple iffy ones, but he was given max effort flying around as much as he is capable of. I mean, they blew out the short, the Charlotte Hornets in one of his first games and he got into a little rhythm where he had a fadeaway bucket and then a block on the other end. And all of a sudden he was calling for the ball on the post. Like, give me the ball. I got a, I got miles bridges on me. This is a bucket. And it was just nice to see him, you know, that excited and that ready to contribute. And then from a basketball perspective, I think my reaction is kind of more or less been the shared one of a mix of uncertainty because we did really only see him for five games, but also I I'm not sure how much this affects the team. Um, I wouldn't be so sure to say it really affects them much at all because I think part of his recent uptick in minutes is that we're at a point in the season where Jeff Green and DeAndre Jordan have played just about every game. And to sum it up, the Nets know what they have in those guys. They know what they have in Claxton, even though they're still you know, putting him in more situations. He's only been playing since February. I think a lot of LaMarcus's minutes um, were just trying to see what they had in him, where he could best contribute the best sort of matchups for him. And that's why I think he was getting a lot of minutes. I don't think the 25 minutes that he had gotten in the last few games would have continued into the playoffs, but it would have been nice to see. Uh, I really regret for him and the fans that, you know, that's not going to be an option for him, but I'm happy he made the best decision for his health for sure. Yeah, and I'll just go off of some of the stuff you said there. I mean, you were right, but like LaMarcus, that Hornets game, he did have it cooking. It looked a little – I mean, it wasn't vintage LaMarcus, but you saw some of the old stuff. And defensively, like you said, I think – because like I think it was Steve Jones for the Dunker Spot podcast, which is fantastic. Everyone go listen to it. I don't know why you aren't listening to it if you're listening to this. But um, LaMarcus Aldridge, like – they, he, they, he was similar enough to DeAndre Jordan on defense, not as not as good, but like not as much of a drop off to make up for the difference of what he could do to help them on offense. And as Steve Jones described on the dunker spot, it's they were like kind of slamming their head against the wall or against the ceiling that DeAndre had on them is that they could only be so good at that certain point with him in the line and LaMarcus offered an upgrade. And that's why they wanted to bring him on. And yeah, defensively, he looked okay. Sometimes the one game that was bad is Andre Drummond kind of killed him. Like in the second half of that Lakers Nets game, it's just, it was just bad. Andre Drummond was too quick for him. You know, usually you want to let Andre Drummond create off the dribble because he's going to do something bad with it at the rim. Not that game. LaMarcus just was not strong enough or quick enough to stop him. But yeah, like I, I don't think, I don't think that's been the reactions that the Nets are in trouble now. But it, I mean, honestly, the reaction above everything else should be, this really sucks for LaMarcus. It's just, you hate to see it for the guy. There's that should always be the first reaction is man. It's just sometimes life sucks. And that's, there's really nothing else that could really be done about that. Um, I'm going to think about LaMarcus. I mean, 
I'll go to you guys. I, I think like Lamarcus probably has a pretty good case for the Hall of Fame. I would say like, I mean, if you're looking for comparisons, people talk about should like Joe Johnson be in the Hall of Fame. Like I would put Lamarcus Aldridge in over him. You know, you look at number of all-stars, which is a very iffy way to judge something, but Lamarcus like getting his all-stars out in the West versus the East. Lamarcus had some really good playoff runs. I, one of my favorites is remembering that Spurs Thunder series 2016, where it was games one and two. He had like 40 something points in each of those games. They could not stop him. He was just hitting everything. You know, his San Antonio career, he had this weird thing in San Antonio where it was like every other year was really good and every other year was like bad and LaMarcus is going to get traded. So it was kind of very up and down tenure there in San Antonio. But yeah, like it really doesn't change that much for the title race unless unless like the only thing that could get bad is if Claxton doesn't look ready for the playoffs and DeAndre looks really bad in the playoffs. And then just like, like you said, they lose an option there. Yeah, that's really the only thing that could possibly be a problem. But like, if it's not one of the big three or Joe Harris, I would say who really is missed out, or maybe even Jeff Green. You could probably maybe those are the Nets' five most important players. I just off the top of my head, I think that's my who it might be. If something happens to one of those guys and they can't go in the playoffs, then it's like okay, we need to reassess this. With Lamarcus out, it's probably like the Nets are still the super team we've all kind of come to think of them to be. Yeah, I would say that whatever opinion you had of the Nets before, I don't think this changes much regardless of how you thought of them. Um, the one thing about LaMarcus, I think he's, I don't know about a shoe in for the Hall, but I think it's a pretty safe bet. I was looking over his career today, five-time All-NBA, which again, you know, accolades can be a bit wonky, but the consensus was he was a top 15, 20 guy in the league for an extended period of time. Genuine or generally that gets you into the hall. Um, he retired 49 points away from hitting 20,000, which sucks for him. Uh, but you know, it doesn't take away from just how, how many boards and points he racked up. I read today that he's one of, I think 12 players with his amount of points, rebounds and blocks. So Yeah, in the past few years, I think we've diminished his accomplishments a little bit. We've thought of him as an archaic type player, but man, he he was a top tier NBA player for a while. And uh, I think he is going to be remembered as that and inducted into the hall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's he's definitely a case of being very good over a long period of time so that he doesn't have the same impact in people's mind of someone that was the very best for a short period of time because those kind of people stand out in people's memories. But yeah, there's plenty of instances of the very good long career type players getting into the hall. Like Mitch Richmond is a guy that comes to mind for somebody that got in that. That's I think you could definitely argue LaMarcus probably is more hall of fame worthy than Mitch Richmond. Exactly. So it's, it's like the the Mendoza line was, is, is the baseball term for, uh, you know, you have to get above that to be considered for something. I, I think the uh, the Mitch line is the, the Hall of Fame line when it comes to the NBA. Um, if we wanted to lower the standards, we can make it the Dino Raja line. <laughs> well, he, th- yeah, that's. A, I mean, that's another. The Basketball Hall of Fame's all. It's, it's very weird because it takes into account not just the NBA. It's it's an international, global, uh, you know, pool yeah. of talent and for all the things we love about basketball the hall of fame is not very well done in organization no it's not um yeah but i think people will 
there'll be debates about like whether he's worthy, but at the end of the day, I think he's going to get in and no one will really have too much of a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's probably enough to talk about LaMarcus Aldridge. Again, we feel for the guy, great player, great career. Sad to see it happen. Uh, but we do have to talk about the Sixers win over the Nets last night. Of course, Kyrie Irving was the only one of the Nets stars playing Kevin Durant and James Harden, both on the bench of injuries. Blake Griffin also sat out. LaMarcus sat out, obviously. And it was not ex- like, would you say it was reminiscent of a 2020 or 2019 Sixers win, Sean, rather than a 2021 style win? Um, I don't know. They have flirted in previous games this season with kind of letting teams back into the game. Uh, the Lakers game is one that comes to mind. Uh, to be fair, this, the, Lakers, the Lakers though were this was that was a full strength Lakers. Right. It, I was I was about to say this is a little different because not only were they missing two stars, Brooklyn, but then Kyrie went out and everyone just kind of assumed like, all right, this is a bench game now. And then not only did the Brooklyn bench get them back into the game, but Steve Nash stuck with them. Didn't even put Kyrie back into the game when it became a one possession game. Um, and and the Sixers did. Aside from Tobias, who had the uh, the achy knee, which uh, I don't know if we can talk about, but it, aside from him, the starters went back in and they were still struggling against uh, the Brooklyn second unit, which just looked really quick. They were they were causing havoc, you know, getting out in transition, um, and oh, Sixers just looked step slow. Ready to fight Ben Simmons? <laughs> yeah, there was that. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I don't, I think it's just one of those things like it's a long season. Embiid said after the game, he just didn't feel like he had the same energy because he sat for a while. I I think it's just one of those things where they kind of like just throttled down and it was just hard for them to throttle back up there at the end. Uh, I'm really not too worried about it from a big picture standpoint. Lucas, do Nets fans kind of consider this a, moral victory in a way that your subs could come out there and bother the Sixers or not. And I I mean, Sixers fans retorts would be that they had the game in hand. It doesn't really matter that much. And I mean, if you're, I mean, Sean, if you don't know if you were checking a lot of Sixers Twitter the other night, uh, a lot of complaints about lack of foul calls, but um, (laughs) that was about the only thing, but yeah, Lucas, do you think the Nets fan base is feeling pretty good after that game last night? Yeah, for a couple of reasons. I mean, essentially their third unit, the, uh, you know, the team that has to go skins in practice, uh, put up a, you love to see guys like that get run, even if they didn't win. You love to see guys like Alizé Johnson and uh, Claxton, you know, play real minutes against the Sixers um, and play well. Alizé Johnson was a plus 16. I don't think anybody else was above a plus three, but um it's a moral victory for a couple of reasons. A, that is always fun to see. Uh, regardless of the standings, I was going crazy in the fourth quarter. I just wanted them to win that game for the fun of it, for the entertainment aspect. The second thing is there are a couple of things you can take away. I think you showed that in the right circumstance. You can, you can have DeAndre Jordan single cover Joel Embiid if for whatever reason, for a small stretch of the game, you're really, really opposed to sending two at him. I think Nets fans are feeling better, like, okay, that's not going to be catastrophic for us. Um, I also think that 
there's not too much to take away from the game, as Sean said. I think with the Sixers starters coming back in a little more lackadaisical, it's very understandable because when you're in that situation, you know, up 20 points in the fourth, the first half of the quarter is like, you're going to see if they're going to make a run. And they don't. And at that point, you know, I'm sure the mindset is, all right, taking the rest of the night off, we're good. Then all of a sudden it gets to four minutes left and all of a sudden the lead's at eight or ten. And you have to go, oh, no, we're, we're going back in this game. And we're facing a group of young guys that have nothing to lose, buzzing all around the court. Um, so I think, you know, the reactions are understandable on both sides. I think there's genuinely positive things for Nets fans to feel good about. Um, one, of which, one of which is that the Nets don't seem too worried about the standings or even the prospect of Philly in general, which is reassuring as a fan, at least they're confident. And for Philly, I mean, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't go too far on the opposite end either. I don't think there's much to worry about, especially this sort of season, these sorts of games. Mm -hmm. And as you're saying, the standings, so now the Sixers up a game on the Nets and now hold the tiebreaker in the case mm -hmm. of the same record. And Philly fans, it's just looking forward. They want it because, I mean, it's the general prize if they, like if you're battling between one and two is, winner doesn't have to face the Bucks in the second round, which is not going to be fun in any sense. And so that's probably the big thing. Just like the whole, like, I don't know, Lucas, uh, me and Sean this whole year, basically, basically when we did our big preseason podcast, we were both very much in the camp of the Nets were being underrated and that we thought they, they're both our pick to come out of the Eastern Conference. Even before the Harden trade, we were very confident in what they were going to be. But it's just so hard to take anything away from them because, like, the Harden, Kyrie, Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, Jeff Green lineup in 151 non-garbage time possessions, it's plus 26 per 100, which is like out of this world, shooting fire into the sun, crazy good. And it looks like that. That's not one of those numbers. Like what, the eye test, it felt like that. Like, oh my God, these dudes are destroying teams. Yeah. But only of 151 possessions, it's their third most played lineup. The <laughs> Like Harden, Kyrie, Joe Harris, Bruce Brown, DeAndre Jordan lineup has played the most for them at 392. For a comparison, the Sixers starting lineup has played a thousand possessions of non-garbage time exactly this year, which also is in part due to the fact that Doc Rivers is king of not staggering starters and bench. He loves all starters, all bench. So it does add up like that. But still, it's just very much like, yeah, the Nets look great. I don't know how much you can even judge them. Like when... We just haven't seen them much. We literally did not see a Philly Brooklyn game this year where I where it was just what a playoff series between those two with everyone healthy, of course, would look like. Like, like Sean, do you think you after last night you have any better grasp on how a Philly Brooklyn series might go? I think on the one end, we know that we feel good that Joel can just get his against Brooklyn. And in a playoff series, he's gonna to have to do that. So I feel even more confident in his ability to do that. Uh, it's the other end that's just a complete mystery to us because as you said, we haven't seen their big three on the court together very often and we haven't seen them at all, all together against the Sixers specifically. So we saw Kyrie light them up Wednesday night. That was just having one guy. What happens when you also have to deal with Harden and KD, who's one of the best shooters ever at like seven feet basically. Mm -hmm. In a way, KD is reassuring that not to see him just because I feel like there's no point in knowing, like, this is how we could stop KD. Because, like, no matter what you do, KD's going to do his thing pretty much. Like, so I feel like that's almost like a data point where it's like, we know what that is already. 
I don't think there's much question about what happens when Kevin Durant plays basketball. Yeah, I guess it's just more deciding who your best option is against him, like whether you need Simmons or whether you can have Tobias kind of like try his best there and use Simmons on one of the smaller guards. And it's a little concerning that they didn't have those data points during the regular season to kind of work that out a little bit. And then they're going to go into the playoff series blind and maybe they figure it out by like game three. And, but is it going to be too late at that point? I don't know. It's, but on the, on the flip side, you know, Brooklyn hasn't had the chance to develop that chemistry between those guys. So that's also something they'll have to work through. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's interesting. Yeah, and like you said with Kyrie going off last night, the one that was one of the things that stood to me. Like Matisse Thibel did fine on him, honestly, but that's the thing. Matisse usually freaks everyone he everybody who gets guarded by Matisse freaks out when they like try and get past him and think, oh, this is an open floater, and then he just closes space like that. Like I think it was Landry Shamit tried to take a three off a pin down in the, early in the fourth quarter. Matisse was stuck behind a screen, and by the time Landry got for the shot, he had jumped out and blocked it. Most guys like have no idea how to deal with his speed, his length. Kyrie could get separation on him. He he hit that insane lefty floater. He could do all those moves. Kyrie, like you see, Kyrie's one of the few guys where I don't think Matisse defended him bad anyway. Matisse didn't get embarrassed, but it's also like you can't just say to Matisse, hey, you're going to guard Kyrie. He's not getting anything. This isn't going to be like Drew Holiday on Dame in the 2018 playoffs. Like this isn't just going to be a shutdown thing because Kyrie is that good. I mean, it's the whole thing of Kyrie is that he, you kind of, it's a dangerous line to tiptoe for his teams because he like takes almost all difficult shots, which is hard to live on, but he also makes such incredible difficult shots all the time. Like Lucas, what was it like watching Kyrie just against one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA, Matisse Thibel, like find ways to score on him. There's nothing like watching Kyrie. There's nothing like watching it in the NBA, in basketball. I mean, the one thing I very much appreciate about Nets fans this year is that there's no sense of taking what we're seeing for granted with Mm -hmm. Kyrie. I mean, the thing about him is he has such excellent body control and awareness that I feel like it looks like he's taking hard shots, but to him, they're really not because all of the hard work comes before he elevates. But if he elevates and he's square to the rim and he has that core lined up with the basket and his feet are lined up, either hand, that's a good shot for him. I mean, it's, it's truly unbelievable to watch. And what I would feel, why I feel even better about Kyrie in a potential playoff setting with Harden next to him where he doesn't, he's not, you know, pound, pound, pound as much, breaking down guys one-on-one, we'll obviously see that. But it's not going to be, to the extent that it was last night in a playoff series, he, and we saw this when for the month of February and a lot of March, it was just Kyrie and Harden, no KD. He can really excel in a more limited off ball role because he's such an excellent shooter from deep off the catch off one dribble. You can run him off screens. He's a really adept cutter, which is something that I've been noticing a lot this year playing alongside Harden, which you know, I don't know if he got credit for it or not, but I think maybe it's not as talked about as it could be. Um, the thing that makes Kyrie so devastating is that if you give him the ball and you let him isolate for seven, 10 seconds, it's going to be a good look. If you get it to him on a cut or in a chaotic situation and he only has two or three dribbles to work with, it's going to be a good shot. So I think that is why 
Nets fans feel so confident about Kyrie's abilities because even though he's known for breaking his defenders down, getting his shot in isolation, we've seen that he can thrive in just about any offensive situation with KD next to him, with Harden next to him, in the limited possessions with Harden and KD. So that has been, in a sense, perhaps the most promising thing from Kyrie this year. He's going to get his no matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lucas, uh, in regard to Kyrie's cutting, that was something Brad Stevens talked a lot about when they brought him to Boston and talking about how he could fit in with their motion offense. And they had the kind of egalitarian philosophy around everybody's going to touch it. And will that mesh with Kyrie as a lead guard? And he said, well, he talked about like a lot of people don't realize what a good off ball cutter Kyrie is and how perfectly that would fit into their system. Now, obviously things didn't work out in Boston, but the basic, you know, ability was definitely spot on. Um, And yeah, Kyrie's succeeded at an off ball role and won a title previously. So he's, in that role. So he's definitely a guy that can succeed alongside a uh, premier lead ball handler. He did it in the past with LeBron. And now uh, they're going to look to do it with Harden. Yeah. I remember a Zach Lowe article actually from around that time, one of his 10 things. And one of the things was pointing out what nice chemistry Horford and Kyrie had with, with Horford as sort of this hub at the top of the key and Kyrie making cuts to the basket. That name is banned on this podcast. Ah, sorry. The player for <laughs> no, but him and Horford and him and LeBron in Cleveland as well. And now I was optimistic about that with Kyrie and Harden, and we've seen some of it. But yeah, it's it's going to be a valuable skill. I think it'll show up in the playoffs here and there. And then you know he's going to get into his bag in the playoffs. There are going to be situations where he gets cross matched or he's in transition and the defense isn't set he has full reign to go one-on-one, even if there are going to be less isolation possessions for him um, in the playoffs. Yeah, Mr. – we usually only refer to Mr. Horford as current Oklahoma City resident, but um... – Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, D- Daniel, I'm waiting for Adam Silver to force Sam Presti out of the league because he has a healthy Al Horford sitting out for the rest of the season. That, that has to come, right? Because you're not allowed to just rest healthy players. You know, people are saying this, Sean. <laughs> um, no, like you talk about Kyrie. I mean, the concern with Kyrie that's, that persisted out his career is what is for most small guards is how do you hold up on defense, especially in the playoffs. And the Nets, like, have the Nets been – the Nets have been switching a lot most of this year, right? It's a very switch-heavy scheme, which, you know, could get you in. Obviously, the Nets would do what they could to not, like, switch Kyrie onto Joel Embiid. But more le- realistically, like what happens if Kyrie gets switched on a Tobias Harris? Tobias Harris has kind of been the Sixers switch killer most of the years that when like the Utah Jazz were playing them and they got, he had smaller guys on him in the post, he just backed them down and hit his fadeaway that he's been making all year. And it's kind of very hard to stop when he's a really big, really strong dude with some soft shooting touch. I mean, watching the Nets most of this year, I think Kyrie has been, he's definitely been working harder on defense that in years past, like not to say he's, effort in the past is bad but like he's had some really incredible hustle plays this year and yeah. he's such I mean Kyrie like he's an incredible athlete just some of the quick movements he can make the balance you talked about like his hands he'll do some of that stuff like that he does have lapses in the half court where just like there was one and I, I talked about it, I like put, tweeted about it today but Joel Embiid missed the pass to Ben Simmons but basically after the pass went to Joel, Ben just walked down the lane and Kyrie completely forgot about him. If Joel just missed it, it was a wide open dunk. If he just passed it to him, he'll have little moments like that. Uh, 
the infamous yeah. Celtics Bucks playoff series where he was calling for switches onto Giannis, like where he would get try and get, get guard him and then got destroyed. Like Kyrie does make some mistakes or lapses like that. And, you know, comparable to the Sixers, their whole thing is worrying about not getting Seth Curry matched up with anyone who's too tall or too athletic for him. And Seth does not have the same burst or ability to kind of compensate for those athletic deficiencies or size deficiencies as Kyrie. I feel like he, he definitely is a little more attentive to details. Seth does not often get like beat because he didn't know something. He gets beat because Seth has a slow first step and it's like six one. Like that that's why Seth gets beat. Yeah. But uh like do you would you worry at all about Kyrie in a playoff series against the Sixers defensively or do you think like they'll put him on I'm guessing Seth Curry and like tell although Seth again like Seth could runs a lot off the ball. Seth works that DHL game with Joel Embiid. Maybe they put him on Danny Green, who, I mean, Danny Green, wait in that corner. <laughs> yeah, I think he's pro. I think he'll likely be on Danny Green and then Seth Curry in order of likelihood. But I am not too worried about Kyrie just because at some point I value the fact that he's been defending in big time playoff series where teams have been trying to expose him for the better part of a decade now. And like you said, his quick twitch athletic abilities, so much of his offensive game is based on making a move, seeing the defender's reaction, and then making a counter. And I, I feel like that really helps him on defense. He has such good sort of anticipatory instincts where he can slide his feet and he's active hands. And, you know, like we've said, he's stronger than you realize. He has a really solid base. He's always on balance. So I think that, if you want to hunt him out on switches, obviously the Nets have gotten better at scram switching in the post. Like they're not going to let him end up on Joel and Bede or even likely Ben Simmons 10 feet away from the basket. But it's not something that I would be super worried about because I think he meets the threshold where if you're building your offense around Tobias Harris posting up Kyrie, that's we're going to exploit that every time down. And I don't think the Sixers are going to do that or anything. But if their game plan which I don't think is likely is we're exploiting Kyrie every down, every time down the court. I think he meets the threshold where that's not viable or that's not great offense, especially because you're not taking him out of the game on the other end because the Nets will have Harden and KD on the floor. And if Kyrie needs, you know, to go stand in the corner for a couple of possessions, that's not going to be a problem. Whereas maybe Boston or other situations, it might be. Mm-hmm. No, that definitely all tracks up. Uh... And Lucas, we're about to get you out of here. So like one final question. Um, do you think Brooklyn fans are confident in a potential Eastern Conference Finals matchup with the Sixers? Even Are they confident even if maybe they see the Sixers as their greatest competition? Or maybe they don't see them. Maybe they think the Bucks would be the biggest, are their biggest competitors on the way to a title. So I think right now the general feeling is the Bucks are the greatest competitors because I think they match up a little better defensively. Um, and Giannis, well, Joel Embiid is going to obviously be a problem in the paint as well, but I think it's the combination of Giannis as well as, um, you know, just the ability to match up with three solid, solid defenders and Drew, Chris and Giannis that the Sixers don't quite have. So for whatever reason it is, I think everybody has their different reasons. The general feeling is Bucks are a step ahead but the Sixers are a clear number two. And then maybe if we see some sparks from the heat or maybe the Celtics really get it going, they could creep up in that conversation. But at this point, I would say the general consensus is one of 
confidence against the Sixers. Um, there are obviously a segment of fans, including myself from time to time, that are worried about the interior battle, especially if they go, you know, five out, Jeff Green, or even Claxton at the five, the lack of size, strength, toughness on, in the paint. But the Sixers are a great defensive team, but I don't think that the feeling is they're so otherworldly where the Nets are going to struggle to put up 115, 120 points. And that's not a commentary on the Sixers. It's just, oof, this team is ridiculous. Like we all feel so fortunate to watch them every night, even with the, even if it's just one or two of the stars, but like, it's, 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 it's absurd. I can't believe they're Nets. I always say that to myself. Lucas, you forgot to mention the potential of a Nets-Knicks first-round series. I mean, Nets fans will talk themselves into winning that. Don't best you believe it. Julius? No, I believe it. I believe it. But I, I would love nothing more. And I wish, I wish the Garden was packed and Barclays Center was packed and, you know, they were booing KD and all that. We won't get that, but I wish it was as Knicks-Nets – I wish it was as heated as possible. There'd be nothing greater for, the Nets, for a Nets fan than that in the first round. All right, Lucas, let the good people know where they can find all your work and follow you. I, I'm, at, I'm on Twitter posting all of my work. Uh, I write for Nets Republic, a blog site focused on, Nets Repub uh, focused on the Nets, obviously. I also post a bit of more general work around the NBA, a um, bit of thorough you know, Reddit posts that sort of work as my own personal blog, a lot of in-depth Twitter threads. But you can find me on Twitter at Lucas underscore Kaplan. Pretty easy. Um, <laughs> And I look forward to talking basketball, Sixers, Nets, whatever, man. Thank you for having me on. And that's Kaplan, K-A-P-L-A-N, for all of you to know. And, yeah, go follow yep. yeah. great stuff. And thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, man, thank you. Thanks, Lucas. And I, I hope you get the Knicks in round one because I don't want Sixers, Knicks, and the throwback to 90s ugly yeah. basketball. Oh, <laughs> I do not want 87 Society doesn't want Sixers Knicks after watching those games this regular season. Nope. Wow. Man, that one seed though, it's it's gonna be important. I mean, you know, I could see the Heat getting together in that, you know, a Sixers Heat second round matchup really being a pain in the ass, but it's a huge prize this year, man. Mm -hmm, for sure. All right. Thanks for hopping on, Lucas. And with threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice. Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. In a moment, we will bring on another good friend of mine to talk Sixers Clippers preview for the game that. I guess you'll be all listening to this as the game is happening Friday night. We are recording this Thursday night. And so with some time here before we get into that, we're going to do our next round of our weekly segment, Danny's Corner, which again, a name I do not like, but it's bad for my brand. It is tremendous content. I guess it's bad for me personally. I already screwed up that intro. Oh, well. <laughs> So here, you're you're hurting your own brand in the name of journalism. I'm hurting my own humility. No, not dignity. That's oh gosh. <laughs> so he, anyone who follows me on Twitter, who read my article this week for Liberty Ballers, probably knows what this is. 
it's the thing I've been focusing on a lot this past week, which is Joel Embiid's interior passing. Because I have some just concerns about it. In the Oklahoma City game is when I first noticed it. Because it was like the first possession of the game. Moses Brown was on him. Lou Dort helped off of Ben Simmons after he threw it into him on an inbounds. Because it was like a ba- it was like underneath. And Ben is open. Ben ducks in and he has Darius Baisley pinned on his shoulder. Now Baisley's fighting hard and he's a long, he has some long arms. Like he can, he can get that if he needs to, but Joel just kind of looks away, does not throw it in. Second time, Lou Dort on Ben again does the same thing after Seth Curry enters the ball. And like Ben has Alexei Pokashevsky, who good player. Alexei's like 150 pounds soaking wet. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but Poku was a very skinny dude. And again, Joel Embiid, after he sees that double, that strong help, he is not throwing it to Ben in the opposite corner. You know, it's not a high low, but it kind of does the same thing where someone is a little bit further extended out. They're not in that paint area. And then someone else is ducked into there and you can kind of get that short pass to them. And like, I'm not sure if Joel isn't seeing it. He clearly, like, if he does see it, he looks away from it very quickly after he doesn't see it so he he's just like not considering it as an option you know in that one he was able to like back it out then he drove and got a foul which i mean again like this whole premise is very nitpicky because joel Embiid is still incredible and deserves all the accolades in the world this is just one thing i've been noticing with him and then there were other plays in the game where it's just he's looking for that skip to the opposite corner which is a fine pass to make it is fine to skip to the opposite corner for three but I feel like there's a higher leverage pass he's just missing there because the Sixers will have those guys go because he's seen more double teams and like strong shows from opponents than ever before because he is playing out of his mind and making every shot. And that's opening up all those seals inside, especially from Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris, you know, are both tall dudes in themselves who if you get to them underneath with the guy on their back, they're going to finish. And Joel does not feel comfortable making that pass, whether it's, he just doesn't think he has like the touch on his passes, the accuracy to make it, or he just thinks it's too risky because it doesn't require that much. Like it does require that much touch. He's much more comfortable jumping up and skipping to opposite corners. And the, that's fine. Again, fine pass, so get some good threes for them. But like later in that Oklahoma city game, Lou Dort, who had been guarding him and showing those doubles earlier, he sees that coming. He's on the opposite elbow and when it goes to the corner, he just books it there, gets his hand on it, and gets a steal. And that's the thing is the best teams in the NBA, those really smart defenders, they will sit on stuff if you're not willing to mix it up. It's like what we always talk about with Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's if he can't get to that jump, if he won't go to a jump shot, it's just teams will sit back and wait. You need to have some counters because teams will come up with ways to try and take away what you like to do. And that might be one thing is doubling Joel and having guys be- having guys like leave that little interior feet open in favor of staying out on the guys because they're confident Joel's not going to throw it. And there was some talk about the Brook, how Brooklyn was doubling him last night. Brooklyn did it a little differently where they were very strongly trying to like, they weren't just doubling him in the post. They were literally forcing him to the corner against the baseline. So they were covering that interior pass. Cause it was like the next closest pass. And that was the Nets game was weird. Like, it did very much seem like Elise Johnson was like trying to take Joel's arms off at times. So, you know, whatever. But I mean, like, Sean, is this something you feel like just 
do you feel like the Sixers could benefit from Joel, like benefit from Joel Embiid being more willing to try those riskier interior passes? Because at the end of the day, like getting those layups off of cuts is what makes the Nuggets with Nikola Jokic so da- dangerous because he finds all those cutters all the time rather than just always kicking out for three and trying to trust your shooters. It's not really something I'm worried about. You're comparing him to Jokic, who's the best passing big man of this generation. So I don't think that's really a fair comparison to draw. Um, Joel right now, he's improved a lot as a passer, but he's at the stage where his main concern is cutting down on turnovers. And he's done a great job of that. He's averaging a career low for turnovers per 100 possessions. Uh, so I think that's his main priority when it comes to that. So his entire, I'm I'm thinking of the kind of like how a quarterback has like a read progression. So his read progression is, okay, is the double coming? If it is, I have to make a good pass that, and do it quickly before the double arrives. And then I get trapped. And, you know, that's how a lot of his turnovers happened in the past. So he's, he's looking to identify the double make the right read and find the open teammate. And I think he's progressed a lot in that area. Um, If the double isn't coming, he's just worried, I think, primarily about, okay, now what do I do as an offensive attacker? Should I start bodying the guy down? Am I going to work my way into my unstoppable face-up jumper, which he hits 99% of the time? It's, I think it's a little too advanced at this stage to say, okay, I need to make these incredibly high-risk passes to guys that have a very tight window through traffic underneath or a guy cutting where there's there's arms in the way and I, I have to time it perfectly. I just, I think right now he has too many other things he's worried about in his mind and he hasn't yet reached the point where that's what he's going to be doing. Um. I just, I just don't think he's there yet. And I think it's a little too early to kind of say he should be. See, okay. I get what you mean. And I'll first start with this. There are definitely times where I under, and I like, that's been the common counter. A lot of people have thrown at me when I've thrown this at them is that, you know, it's probably best just not to risk that. I think there is something really to the best passers in the world are willing to commit turnovers. Kind of like the best quarterbacks in the world have some interceptions, like, because it does help your offense if you thread those tight windows to create those higher up to like generate stuff out of those higher leverage opportunities. And not every pass Joel is missing on the interior is like, there's a guy in the help position there. Some of them he was missing, like they're wide open. Like it's there, it's the right read. And he just isn't seeing it. And again, like I still preface this all with very, if my biggest complaint about Joel Embiid is I feel like he could hit some high, low interior passes more like, it's a very good thing that that's my biggest concern about him. Um, but like, I think it's, it also speaks to, I mean, we all crap on Ben Simmons so much, like as the, an NBA watchers as a whole, like Ben does a really good job when Joel ducks in, just slipping those passes quickly. And there was one at OKC, as soon as Joel put his foot forward, just to step in front of his guy, Ben just whipped it one hand off the bounce to him inside. And it was drew a foul. Like, that stuff is good. And then Ben, though, will have some of those times where obviously he's not nearly the same post-up threat, but Ben can still duck him for those layups and the, those easy, those at-rim attempts, and he just doesn't get it much there, which I think could help. Um, quick thing I found while researching for this, 
Who do you think has been on the receiving end of most of Joel Embiid's assists this year? It's by a wide margin. Like, it's very clearly this one guy. I'll say Danny Green. That is incorrect. Danny's actually fourth. It is really? Seth Curry with 30 on the receiving end 39. But you know what? Because that's how the way they track assists. Where do you think those all come from? It's all those dribble handoffs where. Yeah. I, that was, I, I should have went with Seth. I, I just, because you were talking about the corner, the passes to the corner so much. I went yeah. with Danny. But yeah, all that DHO action, that's the old JJ and Joel playbook that they work together so well on. Yeah, it's 39 to Seth, 20, 22 to Tobias, 18 to Ben, 14 to Danny. Obviously, the four stars the most. Then no one else really, no one else over 10. Joel Embiid, again, not a high assist guy. Doesn't mean he's a bad passer. Assists are, to quote some smarter people, kind of a game-breaking like stat that doesn't get it, – it, it's so dependent on so many subjective things and so many things a player who throws the pass himself can't control or – can control like their 2007 Rajon Rondo or 2008 Rajon Rondo <laughs> and the come off the pin down. Like, so assists are not the measure of a passer. It is something though. And again, like last time I'll say it, this is very good that my biggest concern about Joel Embiid is, man, I really wish he could just find a few more of those very high leverage passes. And he's just not there yet. And maybe who knows, like, Every time Joel Embiid has been asked to improve at something in his life, he pretty much has. Like, he's gotten in better shape. He's such – he's an incredible defender. His mid-range shot is – went from he's probably taking too much of them to he's one of the best mid-range shooters in the NBA. He makes threes. He he does all these things so well. And, I mean, I definitely wouldn't pass jo- put it past Joel to become a great passer. It's just the one thing right now that I feel like as the Sixers come down the stretch of the regular season, currently first in the East – maybe experiment like the coaches show them on game film like hey Joel you might want to try and look at this pass a few more times just let's see how it looks let's see if you're capable of doing that but uh that's gonna do it for this week's Danny's Corner sponsored by nobody and (laughs) we will now bring on a very good friend of mine it is Noah the creator of the NBA underground it's just like the NBA underground blog I always forget the URL (laughs) Noah, you there? Yeah. Uh, so, like, what's the what's the blog? So, is it just the NBA Underground is your blog again? Yeah, I mean, when I first made it, like, the issue was, you know, kind of making a shorter URL. I mean, probably should have gone for that. It's actually it's too long to be my Twitter handle, so I had to abbreviate it. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is that's what I ended up with the NBA Underground dot com. Yeah. So if people don't know, like Noah's Twitter handle is the NBA underground, but it's U N D R G R N D. And Noah is one of the absolute best Twitter followers out there. Someone, me and him interact on there a lot, a lot of great stuff Noah puts out, whether it's full blog pieces, he's done great stuff on Luca on SGA, but you might be wondering, why do I have a blogger who has talked about Luka Doncic and Shea Gildas Alexander on here? It's because he is a Clippers fan and he is going to help us break down the Sixers Clippers matchup that is happening tomorrow and yeah everything going on with that so for first up I think the a good place to start is just in terms of contenders overall do you think are you more confident in the Clippers advancing the playoffs with the very very unfortunate injury that happened Jamal Murray tearing his ACL because 
that was probably what a lot of people were thinking was the Clippers do not want to see the Nuggets again after last year. So is that kind of a thing where, you know, it sucks, but as a Clippers fan, you know, this probably does help their chances that the Nuggets now are a significantly worse team. Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me on. Uh, I need to show this Clipper shirt, 2016 playoffs. It's, it's proof. It, yeah, we, so are, we are an audio podcast only, though. <laughs> oh, well, but yeah, I, I know they can't see it, but just, you know, uh, I need to prove it to you guys. I've been a fan for a while. Um, it does exist. Yes, that's right. Me and, like, the other, I don't know, 10,000 people at that game. <laughs> uh, um, it was it was the game. Um, yeah, against the Trailblazers first round, Chris Paul and Blake Griffin had both gone injured on the road. But of course, that was after I bought my ticket. So I was all excited to, to see this, um, you know, intense playoff game. And then it turned out to be Austin Rivers jacking off 25 shots, which is not not really what I paid for. But anyway, yeah, um, looking at the West. I kind of saw five like contender issues, you know, the LA teams, Jazz, Suns, and then the Nuggets after they made the Aaron Gordon trade. And it kind of sucked because one team with like legit title hopes was going to have to lose in the first round. But, you know, now it's probably going to be the Nuggets. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of see it as those f- four teams I like the Clippers chances ish I think the Nuggets could have been a bad bad matchup not even on paper but just you know there's like some bad bad vibes when it comes to facing the Nuggets after what happened last year no as people have watched a lot of Sixers Celtics series we know exactly what bad vibes are uh, like Sean what do you feel like the Clippers are what do you think of the Clippers as contenders Sean yeah it's we kind of flushed this out when we talked about our, our contender power rankings in, in our previous pod, but the Clippers for me, it's just the specter of Kawhi. We, as, as I said before, just everything about that, the four bounces and his just pure domination in that playoff series against Philly a couple years back, uh, that just sticks with me. So until I, until I see somebody really take the mantle from him as like this is a playoff killer i'm i'm still gonna worry about him more than most other guys in the league lakers obviously won the title last year but they have a lot of health question marks right now i need to see both ad and lebron back on the court and you know looking like they're pre minor injury selves and uh yeah the denver Jamal Murray injury is obviously a huge blow. So I think that kind of knocks them out of true contender status. So given uh, what we've seen now, I'd have to put just the LA teams and uh, Utah and Phoenix as the two kind of dark horses um, just because they have the talent, but we haven't really seen them at the the biggest stage before. And you got to prove it in this league. Um, So we'll see, but uh, still, still a really stacked West. And I, I wouldn't just dismiss Denver out of hand. They just, they have some other good options they can kind of plug in and uh, they have the MVP favorite right now. So they'll, they'll give anyone a really tough series. It's going to be a tough road for anybody to come out of the West. Yeah. Full disclosure, like the nuggets were going to be my pick to win the West as long as Jamal Murray was healthy. I was pretty confident then after just 
I love their size, their shot making ability, how their offense is just humming. Uh, they did have that game before Jamal Murray's injury where the Celtics kind of wrecked them. Although if you watch that, um, let's just say the 20, the Nuggets bench gave a very 2019 Sixers bench vibes where they got outscored by like a million in the five minutes Jokic left the court. So, you know, again, there's a, that can, can be a big thing in the playoffs, but we're not talking about the Nuggets right now. Um, the Clippers, like besides this, the Clippers' biggest problem, honestly, was the Nuggets and moreover the sense that the Clippers have been a franchise for 50 years without making the conference finals. They are very, they are up Therefore, this franchise might actually be cursed in some ways. So, but as, as far as on the court problems go, the constant thing about amongst NBA nerds is the Clippers' lack of rim pressure and just kind of, they're, they're a very, ju- they're almost like they're just, just a jump shooting team, which they are incredible jump shooters. They make a lot of shots, make a lot of tough shots. They have a lot of guys who can do that stuff, but there is something very valuable in just getting to the rim a lot, which the Clippers do not do great. So Noah, what do you think is the Clippers' biggest problem outside of generating rim pressure? And like, what have they done to solve both that problem and like other big problems that might have come out on their team? Which again, like they probably don't have a ton of problems because they are a very good team, but what are other problems outside of that rim pressure issue? Yeah, well, a problem that, you know, they, don't, they can't really like solve, but it is there. So this is an old team, you know, like a lot of the starters are in their late 20s or, or, or their 30s. Um, a lot of the guys are like injured all the time. So, I mean, you just like see it's no, obviously I, I hate when people say, oh, this team outplayed that team, but you know, the Clippers just like kind of don't have energy. Like, you know, it's, they're kind of like they're, they're um, running on old legs, which is why I've been um, ecstatic to see uh, to Terrence Mann and Luke Kennard get some run, especially Mann because Mann is just like, the opposite of all those guys he's explosive he, he doesn't think he just runs towards the rim so I think they really need to inject some of that energy and then probably they need to figure out the guard rotation because you have Pat Bet- Patrick Beverly hopefully you have Mann, Kennard, Reggie Jackson all those guys have their flaws and their strengths and you're going to have to manage that well and then also uh, they give up switches too easily, but I think that's something that you can fix. But those are my gripes with them. Well, if we're talking about like Sixers, Clippers tomorrow and going forward, like don't you think giving up switches easily can be a problem when faced with someone like, I mean, the, the two things for the Sixers, like teams, even if they are switching teams, quote unquote, they generally don't try to switch Joel Embiid because it's, it's Joel Embiid. You do not switch small dudes on the Joel Embiid generally, unless they're like Marcus Smart's probably the only six six guy, under six six guy to ever do it successfully. And the other thing is, as I, we said with Lucas, who was on earlier to talk about the Nets, just Tobias Harris has kind of morphed into a pseudo switch killer. That if you get small dudes on him, guys who are too short, he can really get to that turnaround pretty easily. Like, what do you think they do to handle Joel Embiid as a team that's as switch heavy as the Clippers? Well, I mean, if, you know, they're going to be afraid of that, I'm not like that afraid of Tobias Harris as a switch killer. I know, you know, if he gets a size and strength advantage, he can do something. I mean, you can always roll out like uh, Batum, PG, Kwai, uh, Marcus Morris, and then Zoo, and just, you know, switch one to four. I mean, you can 
Well, you can't really scram switch when it, when a guy has the ball, but I think Ben Simmons, you know, not being a, sh- a shooting uh, threat kind of gives them, uh, you know, like a bit of margin for error. If they're going to, you know, r- run around on the weak side and rearrange themselves. So I'm actually, I'm not that concerned about the switching. I think my biggest concern against the Sixers is if Zubach gets in foul trouble because uh, we're kind of screwed if that happens. If he gets caught on some of the rip throughs. Mm-hmm. Well, he yeah. will. Oh, Sean, what were you going to say? I was just going to ask Noah. Like, I know with Abaka's injury, you guys have brought in Demarcus Cousins on the ten day. Like, are you seeing anything that makes you think Cousins is going to stick around beyond even a second ten day? And what what is like the Abaka timeline? Or is he expected to be back at full strength by the start of the postseason? Um, I know he didn't come on the recent road trip. I think I actually just saw on Twitter before hopping on here that DeMarcus Cousins was offered a second 10-day. I don't know if he'll be around in the playoffs. I mean, he's, you know, a, a body that, like, you can say, just put him on Embiid for, like, a, a minute or two. But I don't really think he's a solution there. I mean, Ibaka, how has Ibaka done uh, with Embiid his, historically, you know, 2019? How was that matchup? So I, I think yeah, yeah, go ahead, Daniel. Okay, well, I guess I will. But um, in the playoffs, I mean, the thing is that Mark Gasol was on him a lot of the times because Gasol is a very noted like Embiid antidote, so to say. Like he's just Sixers fans do not like it when they see Mark Gasol out there because he is very willing to foul. He is very physical. He is very smart, which are basically the traits you need to. If you can't be overpowered by Joel Embiid and you're smart enough to know what to do with him, that's basically like, I mean, you're never going to shut him down. It's Joel, but that's about as good as you can do in Gasol as well. So it's not more that Ibaka has been on him. I will say Sixers fans probably fear Ibaka because again, like Sean mentioned with the specter of Kawhi, the only other specter from that Raptor series was Serge Ibaka hitting all of those threes in game seven, including you remember the one Sean where he's dipped down in the right corner near the, near the Raptors bench has it and swerves up like in the dumbest motion and just swish it. And it just uh, unfortunately I do. Yes. Yeah. Like, I was going to, I was going to say Ibaka isn't, yeah, he's not really a MB defender that you would worry about, but he would be an option if they want to go like to more of a five out offense and try to draw Joel out of the paint and uh, set up their, create a little more rim pressure. Yeah. As you noted, that's, that was a problem, but that, that could definitely help them if they don't have Embiid hanging down there around the basket, if, if they are able to draw him out a little bit. So yeah, it's just another different look they could throw at the Sixers that might, you know, give them a little trouble or just give them something to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and- I would, so I would actually argue that Zubach is better if they want to pressure the, the rim. I mean, Ibaka is who you put in if you just want to, headhunt for your switch but like you know the clippers just the way they are it's going to be a pull up if they get a switch or a post up they're not always go going to the rim but actually so dan you had an article on a beats passing uh recently right mm-hmm. so that, that kind of inspired me you know if the clippers want to play a baka or, or go a small ball kind of like you show that there is a a correct way quote unquote to uh 
to double Joel Embiid in the post and kind of, you know, um, make make the reads harder for him and like, you know, stagnate the Sixers offense. That could be an, an option, you know, to, to stay afloat in the non-zoo minutes versus, versus Embiid, you know, doubling kind of giving him the, uh, I guess, like post to post pass and kind of uh, covering up the opposite corner kick out. Cause he's really, he, he's, I think he made a, lot, made a lot of those passes this year, mm-hmm. right. To the opposite corner. So. So you just played off something I said, I'll play that back again off of what you mentioned earlier. You talked about the Clippers. They don't always have the juice quote unquote. It, they can get a little lethargic times. They're an older team. It's especially with a guy like Pat Bev, who is, one of those guys who brings the energy all the time and he's been out most of the year a guy like Terrence Mann who is I mean me and you have both talked about it in several overflowing with juice and articles everything like love Terrence Mann he's still a young guy he's still very limited he like after the all-star break he was finally willing to take shots the first half of the year I I liked man he would not take a shot like if his life depended on he just did not want to shoot he just wanted to go out there do his thing he was very scared of shooting when he's kind of gotten over that and the thing is, if you're going to be a team that doubles Joel, you have to be very lively and active to do it like that. Like the Thunder had some – the thund, it's the whole thing about the Thunder. They're a very young team that's not winning a lot of games right now. They are working their butts off every time they're on the court. Very active. Guys like Lou Dort, Moses Brown, Long Wings fans. A lot of, there's a lot of juice on the court of OKC. And same thing, Brooklyn had success last night in the fourth quarter with their all-bench unit, which was – guys scrapping around very energetic like because they know it's like this is our way to stop them because we're not we don't have a Marc Gasol we don't have a Anthony Davis so even though Sean and I would both note that Embiid's taken it to Anthony Davis on several occasions but um they don't have like that guy they feel like needs to do they need to bring that energy to try and figure out a way around that so I would say that there could be something the Clippers like the Clippers have to be ready to really work on the defensive end then if you're going to do that against Joel. Yeah, maybe put Man or Pat Bev on the, on the weak side, have them play as like a safety. I mean, we'll have to see if what happens with Embiid's passing by then. But I mean, yes, he has improved, but, you know, he's still, he, he's learned another read. He's still not, you know, like actively reading the floor kind of, if you, if you know what I mean. So they'll have to plan plan for that um about Terrence Mann I'm actually going to abandon all my principles right now and I'm just going to say he's shooting over 40 percent from three this year (laughs) how is that abandoning your principles about Terrence Mann because no just in general because he's going to be taken on the like three she's taken it's it's not a lot Mm -hmm. I'm a big uh sample size chill yeah he's taking 67 threes made 42 percent john any thoughts on like how the nets would defend joel Embiid? how the nets, nets? would oh my the... gosh oh. <laughs> my bad, my right. bad. part part two of the podcast is bleeding into part one yes. yeah um i i don't i think they have a few options they can you know, just throw a big body like Zubach on him and then just kind of faint at the double and try to double sometimes. And, you know, kind of like what Boston has done in the past and in, in past playoff series where you just got to be smart about having it come from different angles and different guys doing it and not doing it every time just to kind of keep him guessing and a little bit confused about, about where the pressure is coming from. 
Um, yeah, I, I think what's going to be interesting is if what Brooklyn actually just did in the last game where they just completely ignore Ben Simmons and kind of bracket Embiid with a guy behind and Ben Simmons's guy in front and just completely deny and force Simmons to either be an aggressor himself or if Doc Rivers wanted to diagram something up where Simmons then became a screener and because there wasn't a guy uh, guarding him, whoever was coming off the screen could then just walk into an open shot. Um, but yeah, I thought that was something interesting that Brooklyn tried. And I think a lot of teams might, you know, give that a look in future, especially in a playoff series where you really have to, you know, switch up what you're doing against teams because otherwise they'll just uh, fi- figure out how to, how to counteract it and, and just go back to that. So you really have to throw different looks at teams. That's, that's going to be something I, I see in if the future. If Zoo's on the court, I don't think the Clippers should throw a double team in there. I mean, because, I, I mean, if you think of, like, the guys who you'd want guarding Embiid, Zubach is definitely on, on the short list of players because, I mean, he's not – obviously, he's not, like, a ballerina, but he can he can kind of position himself a bit, and he has a, a, a lot of mass. I mean, I guess – but you, you don't want him stepping out. So, I mean, maybe, you know, Sixers would try to go – with some uh, DHOs with Seth and Embiid, that yeah, could be a counter. I mean, they they'll just go to that anyways because they they love that action. Like before, when I when I went through my Danny's corner segment, it was Joel is assisted to Seth Curry more than any other player. A lot of that is out of their DHOs, where Joel just teams don't want to leave him. Seth gets a step. Seth is a great shooter. One, two, three, it's a bucket. But um, yeah, and like trying to bracket Embiid, like. You said there, Sean, I feel like, because then that does give Ben some driving lanes in some sense. They're going to play that far off. Them. And like, Noah, are, do you, would you worry at all about the Clippers rim protection, especially like if Ibaka, like say tomorrow night, Ibaka's not playing, like just. I don't think he is. He's definitely yeah. out. Yeah. For tomorrow. Yeah. Then the Clippers, like the Clippers, like best form of rim protection is like a la the 2018 Rockets where, or was it 2018 or 20? It was 2018 where the rim protection is keeping the ball in front and not letting it get there? Or do you feel like, would you worry at all about like the Sixers getting to the rim sometimes and finishing over the Clippers? Cause they maybe don't have necessarily that guy's like scaring you at the rim. Well, it's, I mean, it's either zoo or you don't have him. If he's in, I like him as a rim protector. I mean, obviously you can't just leave Embiid, but you know, Embiid doesn't get off the ground that, yeah, that quickly. Load up jumper. Yeah, so you can kind of, you know, go off him for a bit to to help. I mean, you know, I, ideally you won't have guys just, you know, uh, sprinting to the rim because you, you do have some bodies to put on those perimeter gu- guys. But I mean, you know, just I, I'm I look it, just in, in general as a rim protector, I'm 100% on board with with Zubach. I, I love the rim protection he gives. He's had success against LeBron, uh, Luca, and the best part about it for this matchup is that Doc Rivers still doesn't know that Zubach is a good rim protector. So <laughs> he may not ad- adjust to that. Oh my gosh. When you, that is amazing that we went this long without bringing up any clip, seven year Clipper coach Doc Rivers slander from Noah. Uh, like, do you have any thoughts on, do you want to give any more thoughts on Doc Rivers, Noah? <laughs> um, I was going to, you know, sprinkle it in, but 
because I was just thinking beforehand, I was like, you know, uh, um, Clippers, Sixers, right? It, sh- it should be a fun matchup, but there's, there isn't much like, obviously not, not that I want the teams to hate each other, but you like when, you know, there's a, a little bit of a personal vendetta going. And I was like, oh yeah, Kawhi, the shot, he brought a Baca with him. And then obviously Doc, Doc Rivers and his replacement is none other than Ty Lu, who kind of just, you know, sat right next to him on the bench the whole year just uh, waiting for his opportunity. So, you know, I, I hope that there's going to be some, you know, back in a, a bit of like uh, personal s- stuff in there, you know, kind of a, a bit of, uh, of narrative between the two teams. But all I'll say is I'm happy that we have Ty Lu and you guys have Doc. Sorry, I'm just, I'm so out on him after last year's playoffs. Like, I entirely did. I saw the Montrose Harrell of Vita Zubat splits too. Like we all did, but um, yeah. So wrapping up here, Sean prediction for the Sixers Clippers game. That's going to on Friday night. It, uh, it obviously hinges on whether Kawhi plays. He's currently listed as questionable, but uh, Paul George is in. So they will have at least one of their uh, star wing duo. I'm going to say the Sixers take care of business. I think Embiid's just rolling right now. Um, He's coming off two straight games of at least 36 points. And we we haven't even really <laughs> we haven't even really uh, talked about it too much in like the Sixers Twitter verse. It was it was basically like, oh yeah, that's just Joel being Joel. And a 39 and 13 game in previous years would have been like three days worth of fawning over how lucky we are, but uh we just kind of take it for granted now. Um yeah, otherwise uh Hopefully Tobias is is healthy enough with his knee. He's also questionable, but I think the Sixers are by and large playing good ball right now. They're at home where they you know have a lot of success. And uh, if if Kawhi's out, I, I'll say it's an easy an easy win. But uh, yeah, I still say they get it done at home in a close one, even with Kawhi in there. Yeah, but I mean the fifty piece changed everything. From there now, everything that isn't a fifty piece is just like that's just Joel Embiid. He's awesome. Yeah. But, just, uh, yeah. Noah, what, what's your prediction for the games? Um, I'm pretty contingent on Kawhi playing. If he's playing, I like the Clippers. I just think, you know, run a lot of high ball screens, get Embiid out there. I mean, obviously, you know, Simmons is – they're probably going to put Simmons on uh, Kawhi, right? Mm-hmm. But Clippers okay. have a lot of tall guys who shoot over 40% from three and – they're not going to be able to cover any of them. You know, hopefully you can draw Seth Curry or Danny Green into some on-ball stuff. Yeah, it feels weird to say that about Danny Green. But, um, I, yeah, I, I just – I like what, what they can do on offense against Sixers and because Zoo is there and Boogie has maybe, like, a, a soak up a couple minutes here and there. I, I like the Clippers tonight, unsurprisingly. Sean, I'm feeling a Danny Green game. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. I think it's we we he's still been playing really well post All Star break. I think it's going to be a. I don't have any reason for it other than I think it's time for a Danny Green game. We're about we're about to do for like another eruption. Is it just L A being listed on the uh, scoreboard? Exactly. Like <laughs> just he's gonna something about that he sees red. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I still remember his opening night game from last year. He, 
Exactly. Oh, yeah, you know those dirty, kept them afloat. Clippers. That's exactly. Thank you for bringing that up again. No, it's evidence to support my wild claim. It's it. I've won. Uh, and more importantly, it will not be a Seth Curry game because the Clippers are tall. And as we already determined, Seth will not win a bell ringer this year because Sean does not like him. This is not true. I very much hope that Seth gets a bell ringer. Uh, he's still the only main rotation guy that doesn't have one. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a completist. I want, I want everyone to get theirs. So Dakota Mathias has one. Tony Bradley has one. Did Paul Reed get one or did he not win that one? No, shockingly, Paul Reed did not. I thought uh, about a week or two ago that he definitely had one locked up. But uh, I know. Like, how can we do that to B-Ball Paul? Friend of, friend of the Liberty Ballers program as a guest on the Gastropod. I know. Uh, there's still time. I mean, there there will be a game in the last week of the season where the seat is locked up and they sit the starters and Paul Reed gets 38 minutes and he'll get his bell ringer. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I probably said. No, what were you going to say? I, I would say I probably sound like an idiot. I mean, I've, I've, I've listened to the uh, these pods. I've heard the bell ringer thrown around. What exactly is it because it's just this like mystical award for me right now i need you know what it is it's it's kind of so the name goes back to when brett brown was the head coach after a win he had this little uh miniature liberty bell that he would bring into the locker room and he would kind of like go to the player of the game and they would ring the liberty bell and everyone would cheer and it was kind of this hokey endearing thing that they would do um they also before the beginning of every game they have they call it the, the game's bell ringer where like a celebrity like m night Shyamalan will come out yeah, and fire yeah, the crowd up by, by hitting the bell um when the pandemic was going full strength and there was no fans at the beginning of the year at all they they had a different player from the team do it each game um but basically the bell ringer award for the site is it's kind of like player of the game but it doesn't necessarily have to be who is who was the best player on a given night. It could be like who exceeded expectations the most, or like if you hit a game winning shot, you could be the bell ringer, even if that was only like your sixth point of the night, or you like shut down somebody on the opposing team, like a night where Ben Simmons shut down Luka Doncic, he could be bell ringer, even if he only had like 10 points or something. It's mm-hmm. it's a very nebulous concept. Um, so I, I think it uh, lends itself to some fun discussions. Is this award exclusive to Sixer players? Yes, yes, unfortunately. Yeah, um, so so yeah. even in losses, a sixer gets the bell ringer. I was just gonna ask about Reggie Jackson's candidacy. Oh no, no way. <laughs> um, and like like Sean was saying, like there's the reason Dakota Mathias has when he got it in the third game of the season, right, where they got blown out by the Cavs and Sixers fans were pissed, so they just gave it to Dakota out of spite. It was a spite vote. Spite mode. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's gonna wrap it up for us today. I guess I didn't get. I guess I did give my pick. Danny Green goes off. Seth does not. Sixers win. Noah, let the people know where they can find all your fine work, where they can follow you on Twitter and just everything. Uh, thanks. Uh, just one last thing. I'm praying for a canard man starting backcourt that that make warm my heart. Uh, my Twitter handle at the NBA und R G R N D. There's no vowels at the end. That is what it is. I have a website as well um going by the same name the nba underground uh you can find me uh, on on the timeline uh yeah I'm, I'm i'm just on twitter i mean i'm i'm, I'm just a blog that's 
who knows if there's a person behind it or if there's a team of people behind it but yeah that's that's it and i should have something coming like soonish i mean soon means different things to different people but i'm working on something pretty exciting and i hope all these viewers will enjoy listeners well, Noah, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It was great having you on again. Follow all his work. And Sean, I will talk to you next week. Yeah, thanks talk to you next on. week, Daniel. And thanks, Noah, for jumping on. Good talking to you. See you guys. Bye. Thanks.